So we're reading this, the first four verses of chapter 5 in 1 Peter. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Good morning, folks. Good, good to see you. Um, there has been a half-term break this week, and some parents, as Colin rightly says, have ended up spending more time with their children than usual. Um, he talked about how that might be a, a draining or a tiring experience. I, I didn't know what he was talking about. Um, I, I distanced myself from those comments. Um, we, we've been away for a couple of days with our three children and a, a couple of uh, my nieces as well. So we had five uh, children with us. Um, so feeling refreshed and energized uh, and ready for, for what lies ahead. Um, I received uh, an email last weekend uh, bringing some bad news. It said that the colleagues and friends of the Reverend Dr. William Craig, Minister Emeritus of First Portadown and former moderator of the General Assembly will be saddened to learn of his death. Some of you will know who I'm talking about. Uh, I think Dr. Craig was either 98 or 99 years old at the time of his death last weekend. As I say, I was saddened because he was the first minister uh, that I ever was under um, as a wee boy born in Portadown. So I was baptized by Dr. Craig into the church family there at first Portadown. And although I was only ever a wee kid, uh, I left Portadown at the age of eight or nine. Um, although I was only ever a wee kid under his uh, care, I had a strong sense then that here was a, a really godly man a godly leader. And over the years, whenever I met um, adult people and his name came up in conversation, this, was, uh, this childhood impression was definitely reinforced to me. Uh, whoever this gentleman was, uh, to a man and to a woman, people agreed that he was a godly man, a, a godly leader, somebody who was entirely committed to Jesus Christ and pointing other people to him. I say that simply, it's, a, it's another, you'll have your own stories um, where you've seen the importance of leadership, uh, of leadership in the people of God. Um, from the early days of history, God always gave his people leaders. So when we read the Old Testament, we find that God gave elders to his people. Uh, the synagogues of Jesus' day, they were elder-led uh, 
the New Testament church when it was born, we don't have any great sense that they were told how to structure themselves, but very naturally, being born out of Judaism, they continued uh, the pattern of the synagogue. So the communities that they birthed were led by elders. And that's why you have Luke in his account in Acts talking about the existence and the appointment of elders and also then Paul in his letters uh, talking about elders and how they should be appointed. The Bible is very clear on this subject. Healthy churches need healthy leadership. Presbyterianism uh, over the years has always been committed to a plurality of elders. That, that is, we say that in a local congregation, there's always a, a leadership team of elders. Um, the Kirk Session, if you want to give it its historic Scottish title. These are ruling elders, and they're people who are elected by the congregation to lead and to pastor them. There are teaching elders too. Um, I'm one of those. The interesting thing, and I'm not sure how this goes across other church traditions, there's no disparity of authority between a ruling and a teaching elder. Um, I regard myself and our church law says that I'm equal with our other elders, but I do have a distinctive role, uh, as, as the name says. I'm the teaching elder, so I'm responsible in a, in a particular way for how God's word is brought into the life of our congregation. Working with the elders here the last 13 years at Kirkpatrick Memorial has been one of the, the great highlights. One of the, there are so many parts of the, the life of the church that I've enjoyed, but working with the, the leaders here has definitely been one of them. From those earliest days, I had a real sense that the folks here wanted to see God's glory in this place. That's, that's really all. It wasn't their own glory. It wasn't the glory of Kirkpatrick Memorial, the, the church or the brand. It was just to see God work in Ballyhackamore. Uh, and I was very struck by that way back in 2003. And, you know, clear as I was that it was the case back then still clear that it's the, the case now, that that's where the heart of our Kirk session lies. Colin's already said we're heading into a season of electing new elders, and I'm going to take three Sundays to prepare us for that election, which will happen in early March. We're going to think about the process, and we're going to look at God's word, to God's word for guidance uh, for this important moment in the life of our church family. Before we get into the biblical text, I am going to take some time to explain the process to you. The, the further I've gone with this, the clearer I am that that's worth doing. Um, as I was preparing for this, I thought, I've done this three times in the last few years, and I, I still don't know how it works, or, or can't be dead sure. And then I thought to myself, well, so many people have joined Kirkpatrick uh, over the years. Some have come from very different church traditions. They have no idea how it works. So in the interest of just in informing you, but also being transparent in our dealings, we're very keen as a leadership to, to explain ourselves to you. To try and clarify things for you, I'm going to share a, a few bits from the code with you. Hands up if you know what I mean when I talk about the code. Hands up. 
less than half of us are sure what the code is. So the code is uh, a a sort of a legislative piece. It's, it's our church law, if you like. It's the document that governs how congregations of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland conduct their life. It's a brilliant read. It really is. And the, the lovely news, it's available on the internet. You don't even have to buy it. Just take it from there, put it on your Kindle or whatever, and read away and enjoy the code. I've got a lovely suite of PowerPoints for you today because I'm going to share a little bit of the code with you. The only reason I would ever choose to do this is mostly because I have to. Uh, the law of the church says I have to do this. In this case, I think the law of the church is probably right. I think it's good for you to see some of this stuff, to understand um, what, what we're doing, why we're doing it. So if we fire up that first slide, Paragraph 177. The decision when an election is to take place and the number of ruling elders to be chosen devolves normally upon the Kirk session. But any member of the congregation may petition the session upon the subject and the decision of the session in these matters is subject to review by the superior courts. I told you it's good, isn't it? Um, like it it's great. Um, so, the decision when to have an election belongs to the Kirk session, but if you were fed up with us and thought we were trailing our feet, you could say, right, time we had an election of elders. Now, nobody has said that to us. Probably because we've had so many elections of elders, there's uh, not been any sense that, that you've needed to say that. We have approached the East Belfast Presbytery. We've asked permission for this election, so it's, it's above board in that regard. But you might be wondering why. Why is the congregation wanting to elect new elders? In fact, some of you might have grown up in Presbyterian churches. And you might have a sense of the rhythm of these things that an election of elders happens maybe once every generation. You elect the new elders to lead you for the next whatever, 20 years. This is the fourth election of elders in the 13 years that I've been here. Our fourth since 2005. Our last election was only three years ago. What's wrong with this place? Why are we electing new elders on such a regular basis? Well, two things, um, at least two things I can think of. One is that the congregations continued to grow. God's brought us more people that we need to disciple and care for. Um, so we want to always be ready to do that. In addition to the growing congregation, we've had a shrinking Kirk session. I, I sort of lost track of this because I didn't hold it in my mind. Since 2014, we have lost how many elders? Ten. Okay. Five of our elders took a well-earned retirement. Four of our elders have moved on to serve in other churches. And one stood back from that responsibility. Ten elders lost to us in the last three years. So I hope, I hope that just makes a case for this election, in case anybody has any questions about that. The, the next slide then, um, the minister shall explain to the congregation the duties and qualifications of ruling elders whose election is sought, and paragraphs 30 and 31 of the code shall be read. See, you have to do it. You see it there. 
code says I have to do it. So paragraph 30, let me read that. This speaks about the duties of the ruling elder. The duty of ruling elders as members of the Kirk Session is to work together with the minister in the oversight and government of the congregation for the upbuilding of God's people in spiritual fruitfulness and holy concord and for the extension of Christ's kingdom among all people. It's not the language I would choose to describe our work to you in, but it's great stuff. If a leadership in any church does this stuff, then they're doing good work. So our elders are working for your spiritual maturity, for our unity, and for more and more people coming into the kingdom of Jesus. Next slide. Ruling elders, by their calling, share equally with ministers in responsibility for the practical witness both within the congregation and in the wider world. So there's two parities there. The minister works with the other elders, that's inequality, and we're also wanting to work inside the congregation and outside it. Okay, that's it, that's what it says. And the next slide. In the discharge of his duties, each elder should be assigned a district or special responsibility within the congregation in which he may more particularly represent the Kirk session by visitation, private counsel and report, but the Kirk Session may assign other such duties as it sees fit. Just to explain, we have 13 active elders at the moment. They look after 11 pastoral units or districts, and they also, uh, between us, we share three extra responsibilities, two in the area of working with teenagers and one in the area of working with our visiting team. So each of our elders is occupied in a role agreed by Kirk Session. Nearly done with the code, you'll be glad to know. I'm just going to read um, paragraph 31 today. We're going to deal with it in more detail next week, but for completeness I'll show it to you now. To be chosen for the office of eldership in a congregation, a person must be a voting member of that congregation and a regular attendant at its ordinances. He should be circumspect and exemplary in his conduct, both in the church and in the world, of acknowledged piety, endeavoring to maintain the worship of God in his family and held in esteem by the people. Women shall be eligible for election on the same conditions as men. And the next slide says, a ruling elder shall not hold office in more than one congregation at the same time, except as a member of an interim session. And then finally, paragraph three, subparagraph two, shall only apply to retired ministers who may be members in the congregation. Once you're into subparagraphs, you know it's time to stop and, and leave that behind. As I say, I'll deal more with the question of the qualifications for eldership next week. In the remainder of our time today, I want to talk about the duties of eldership. What does an elder do? And how are they to do it? Be useful if you had one, Peter, open before you. The passage that we read a few moments ago, it's on page 1220, 1,000. 220. We only read a few verses, but I, I did that purposely just to keep clarity, a uh, bit of focus on that short bit of text. 
if you look there at the context, you'll see that Peter isn't writing for an election of elders. He's writing to elders who are already in their roles. He says, to elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. And what duties does he want them to undertake? Look at verse 2. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. That's a really interesting choice of image. Shepherds of a flock. Not be managers. Not be directors on a board. Not be strategists. Be shepherds. If you know the Bible, you'll know that that image has a lot of currency, a lot of usage in the Bible. But I want you to think for a second about who's writing. Peter. The same Peter who'd been with Jesus and who'd heard him say with unprecedented authority, I am the good shepherd. So Peter got to hear Jesus say, I'm a shepherd, and then he got to watch Jesus do it. He got to see what a shepherd is because he watched Jesus. And you'll remember Peter was part of that special little group of 12 who spent so much time in Jesus' company, hearing his words, seeing his deeds. Jesus had taught Peter, but he hadn't just taught him. He'd entrusted him with responsibility. Jesus had corrected Peter and he'd forgiven him. Jesus had loved Peter to the end. So Jesus had been the shepherd from whom Peter had learned. And whenever Peter wanted to talk to people about what it means to lead in the church, that's the image he went for. He wants leaders in the church to be shepherds or disciplers of God's people. That's the basic task. If you read some of the older literature about what it is to be an elder in a church, and by the way, that's where the word pastor comes from, pastoral. It's, it's the shepherd image. This is what it means to lead in the church. Always has been, always will be. Peter gives us a wee bit more definition by three uh, contrasts, three not-buts, and that's what we're going to use as the outline for the, the last few minutes together. He says, be shepherds not because you must, but because you're willing. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. A few minutes on, on each of these, just to think about this work of an elder. Elders shepherd God's people, not because they must, but because they're willing. Folks, I, I can't think of many jobs where a conscript is less appropriate than this work. There are some jobs you can do without a love, you know. There's some types of work you can be plugged into a computer and you can churn out the stuff. And it doesn't matter whether you love it or not. Some jobs aren't like that. Teaching, I think, is one of them. It's not a lovely thing to be in a classroom with a teacher who doesn't love teaching. 
I think it's the same in the church. It's not great to sit under the care of leaders who don't want to do the job. That doesn't mean, by the way, that everybody who, who might be approached to take up this role is, is sitting rubbing their hands together and thinking, wow, I've been dying all my life to do this. There might be a lot of trepidation, a lot of concern about whether I, I can do this. Am I able for this job? Would, would, could God use me to be a blessing to the people? It's possible that we, we worry and we have doubts about our, our ableness. But underlying all of that uncertainty and that hesitation, we need to have a strong sense that God's calling us to serve and we need to be willing and we need to trust that God will equip us for that task. Be shepherds of God's flock, not because you must, but because you're willing. Just one, one thing I would say about that based on experience maybe Bear in mind when you're making your nominations, in a couple of weeks' time you're going to have a sheet in your hand with the names of all of our eligible members. Bear in mind when you're looking at that sheet, ask yourself this question. Even if you were sure that a person was a good person for the job, there's this question too. How willing would this person be to make eldership in Kirkpatrick Memorial a primary part of their calling? Okay, If you know that that person is super busy and committed outside of the life of this church and you, you have a sense that they, they might want to remain that way, that that's where their heart lies, that's where their commitment is, then this job isn't for them. Elders who are to be shepherds in this church, we want them here to be, not because they must, not because we have forced their arm behind their back and said, you know, you have to do this, but because they're willing. You'll find the second of Peter's uh, contrasts, his not buts, at the end of verse 2. He says, elders shepherd God's people, not because they're eager for money, or greedy for money, sorry, but eager to serve. Now, again, this is as good a time as any to let a wee cat out of the bag here. There's no money in this, all right? If anybody is, you know, if, if you're waiting for the small print for the, the terms and conditions, there's, there's nothing there, okay? And you might think, well, in that case, we, we quickly pass on because what Peter is writing here, it might have applied somehow in his day. It doesn't apply in our day. Well... Actually, I want to, to pause just before we do that. The NIV translates a, a phrase here. It says, not greedy for money, but, but that translation might be a wee bit narrower than it needs to be. In the message, Peterson translates it like this, the same phrase, not calculating what we can get out of it. It's a, a broader definition than just money. Doesn't that shed a whole new light on, on what, what might be at play here? Because it is possible, I think, to enter church leadership calculating what I can get out of it. 
I've, I've shared this illustration before. It's good for me to encounter this illustration once in a while, but it'll be new to some of you. I remember sitting in a class at college, at Regent College. Mark Davis, our uh, pastoral professor at the time, I think it was probably the first day in the course with him. He walked in, we were introducing ourselves, uh, and in the middle of it, he drops this bomb. He says, um, raise your hand if a desire for honor and prestige have played any part in your call to ministry. And there's a moment's silence. And I was sitting at the back because I always sit at the back. So I could see that there were no hands going up. And I didn't put my hand up either. And then he got up, packed up his stuff, and walked towards the door. And he said, I'm, I'm not teaching this class until there's even a beginning of some honesty in the room. There, there's always a danger, folks, that we take on um, responsibilities somehow wondering what the privileges are that will come with them. It might be honor and prestige. I don't think that's as much of a danger as it used to be. I suspect in the old days there was something about being able to say you were an elder in a Presbyterian church. Not sure that carries quite the same currency. Maybe that's a good thing. We're safer than we once were. Some people want to get on to a Kirk session because they want control. They've had to sit for all those years watching those other numpties run the place. And now's my chance to get in there and get it done right. They want to make sure things are done the right way, by which they mostly mean their way. Isn't it great? I love preaching God's word and not my own words because it means I get taken to some places I wouldn't naturally choose to go. This is one of them. This is an uncomfortable, honest moment in Scripture. Peter warns that those who would be leaders shouldn't be calculating what they can get out of it, but they should be eager to serve. Think again of Peter, right? Peter's writing. Who did he learn from how to lead? He learned from Jesus. And what did he learn from Jesus on this particular issue? Well, I'm, I'm immediately drawn in my mind to the upper room, to that bunch of guys having a dinner together where there's that awkward moment Who's going to wash the feet? Somebody has to wash feet before we can have dinner together. It's, it, it's what needs to be done. It's the, the, old, the old equivalent, I think, the olden days equivalent of who's going to clean the loos before we do whatever we're doing here. And they all look around and they're thinking, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it. And Jesus, their master, gets up, puts the towel around his waist, grabs the bowl and washes their feet. Peter had been astonished by the leadership that he had seen Jesus Christ offer this guest of honor who takes on the servant role. 
Folks, I, I want to encourage you about the leadership that you already have. The truth is, you have some elders and leaders in this church who serve in extraordinarily sacrificial ways. A lot of them are very, very busy. They're busy at home. They're busy in their workplaces. Uh, I, was, I didn't have to look for ways to, to share about this and illustrate it to you just, just the past week. We were here together until after 11 o'clock on Monday night, grappling with some of the, the important issues that are facing us as a church family at the moment. I was doing some pastoral work then on Tuesday night, and a couple of the elders had said to me on, on Monday night, I'll, I'll go with you to that if, if you need some company. So I texted them both, um, tea time on Tuesday. Now, Tuesday, some of you at least will, will know that Tuesday was Valentine's Day. Do people know that in the congregation? Yeah? So I'm thinking, right, I'm going out to do a bit of work on Valentine's Day night. Claire, I don't know how we are about that. We're okay about that, good. But I'm texting other elders to say, do you want to come with me? You said you could come. And I'm half imagining the conversations in their households, thinking I'm glad I'm not there. And the texts both come back to say, no, I can't. But they don't come back to say, because I'm you know, getting myself ready to go and have a candlelit meal with my wife or my husband. It's because both of them are already doing some other pastoral work that evening. One of the elders in question is going to meet with a teenager, a member of the congregation. Uh, another of these elders is going to share with a, a local neighboring conversation, sharing a little bit uh, about the life that God's given us here. Our elders serve sacrificially. And anyone who's ready to join them will need to have that same servant heart too. So elders are to be shepherds of God's flock, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Verse 3, our third of these contrasts, these not buts, flows naturally out of uh, verse 2. Elders are to not lord it over those entrusted to them, but to be examples to the flock. It's possible for men and women to take up positions of church leadership and to, to try to lord it over people, those who are entrusted to our care. We, we imagine that we can police the church. We make sure who gets in and who stays out. We choose to be the watchdogs, guarding the perimeter of God's family, barring the way for, for undesirables, throwing out any who don't quite fit. And when we do that, we're not serving. Uh, we are controlling. And it's a very real danger. Peter warns us not to be lording it over those entrusted to them. We all know that the best form of leadership is, is leadership by example. If you think back on your lives, the, the people who have influenced you most aren't the people who were most authoritarian with you, had the strongest sense of control. They'll have been the people who were most inspirational, who'll have lived lives that you wanted to emulate, that you wanted to, to follow. 
And that's the challenge, I think, for all of us in church leadership. To give leadership that others want to follow. It's unsettling for people like me. It means I'm constantly asking myself the question, if people did or, or do follow my example, will, will they become more like Jesus? It's kind of what it boils down to. So as a wrap-up for this morning, I'm going to ask you to imagine a couple of weeks' time you're given your nomination form you're given the list of the names of all the, the members of our congregation eligible to be elected. And here's probably the biggest question I want you to ask yourself. Is this man or woman following Jesus? Does what I see in their life make me want to fall in behind them and follow Jesus too? Will they be able to lead me to better follow Jesus? If not, no matter how influential or successful they are in other walks of life, they're not ready for this job. Not yet. But if they are, then they're precisely the kind of people you should nominate. Precisely the kind of people we want to bring on to our leadership in the church. Men and women who disciple us. Shepherds of the flock in this place. Let me pray.